There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. This week marked the 10th anniversary of the masterful documentary, The Act of Killing, interviewing former Indonesian death squad leaders, namely Anwar Congo, about the killing of three million people in a 1965 coup, then having the killers reenact the executions in various Hollywood genres. I spoke to Oscar-nominated director Joshua Oppenheimer in 2014, a week before the Academy Awards, about filming The Act of Killing and earning the endorsement of Werner Herzog and Errol Morris as executive producers. There's a longer director's cut of the film, which was really is really the unabridged version of the film. It came, it's the main release version outside the U.S., and then I made a shorter version so it would reach a larger audience here at home. And the, uh, when Werner, Werner saw that, and he got very excited and said, you know, what are you doing And I now? And I said, I was shortening it. And he said, no, you mustn't shorten it in this way that only Werner can quite say. And I said, well, I am. And he said, okay, well, if you must, I will be happy to lend you my fresh eyes, my fresh perspective, and watch the successive shorter cuts. And he did. He gave us really wonderful attention during the very final stages of the editing when we were making the shorter cuts of the film. And uh, then has been just a great friend as we've released the film. Errol came on board much earlier. In, in late 2009, he saw some roughly edited scenes from the film. And uh, lent his name so that it, to help us raise the last bit of finance we needed to to actually complete the movie, and then when we brought it out, Errol uh, has again been been a great supporter. Uh, I was introduced to Errol by my one of my college mentors, uh, Alfred Gazzetti, who's a friend of Errol's, and I was introduced to Werner by our British executive producer Andre Singer, who produces Werner's documentary. But I grew up right here in D.C actually in uh, Capitol Hill and then in Tacoma Park and then in Chevy Chase. I was here, I, I moved from Texas to here when I was one, and I was here really throughout my childhood except for a couple years where I spent in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where my mom moved. So I left the D.C. area uh, to go to college, and then after college I moved to London and was living there uh, from 97 until 2000 and the end of 2010, and then I moved to Denmark, which is home now, Copenhagen. I went to Montgomery Blair, uh, which is it was a science high school. It has a mag- science magnet program. It's in Silver Spring. And I went to college, actually, initially thinking I would study theoretical physics because I was interested in the nature of existence. And in some ways, I see my explorations in film as a continuation of that. Well, I knew very little about Indonesia when I first went there. I was asked to go there in 2001 to help a group of plantation workers make a film documenting their struggle to organize a union in the aftermath of the Suharto dictatorship when unions were illegal. I went there um, 
I, when I got there, I found out that I, I found really deplorable conditions. These were people working for a Belgian oil palm plantation company about 60 miles from the city of Medan in North Sumatra, where we would go on to make the act of killing. And the workers were being forced by this Belgian company to spray a weed killer, a herbicide, with no protective clothing. And the the stuff was getting into their bloodstreams. The mist was getting into their lungs and into their bloodstreams and dissolving their liver tissue and making people very sick and killing particularly the women workers in their 40s. And yet they were afraid to organize a union because their it turned out their parents and grandparents had been in a strong plantation workers' union until 1965 and had been accused of being potential communist sympathizers simply because they were in a union. There was a kind of witch hunt in the aftermath of the military coup, and they were killed for it. And what's more, when these workers would try and deliver petitions or protest against the use of this herbicide, the company, the Belgian company, would hire Panchasila Youth. It's a paramilitary group you see in the film that got its start through the genocide to come and intimidate and threaten them. So they were afraid. And after we made that film, they said, come back and let's make another film together about why we're afraid. And when we tried to do that, when we got back in early 2003, the army found out what we were doing and wouldn't let the survivors participate in the film anymore. And the survivors then said, before you give up, Josh, before you go home, try and film the perpetrators. They may tell you how they killed our relatives. And when I approached the perpetrators, a little nervous at first to do so, I found to my horror that every single one of them was boastful, openly recounting the grisly details of the killing, often with smiles on their faces, often in front of their families and even their little grandchildren. And I felt as though I'd wandered into Germany 40 years after the Holocaust, only to find the Nazis still in power. And when I showed the material to survivors and to the human rights community in Indonesia, everybody said, you're onto something so important. Keep filming the perpetrators because anyone anywhere in the world who sees this, not least in Indonesia, will be forced to acknowledge the rotten heart of this regime that the killers have built and maintained ever since the genocide. After the survivors encouraged me to continue, I spent two years doing a work sort of on their behalf that they certainly couldn't do safely, filming every perpetrator I could find across the region. I worked my way from the countryside to the city. When I reached the city, uh, I, Anwar, I met Anwar. He was the 41st perpetrator whom I filmed. And the, there's an early scene on the roof where he takes me to, uh, the early scene in the film where he takes me to a rooftop, shows how he killed with wire, and dances the cha-cha-cha in the spot where he's killed hundreds of people. That was the very first day I met him. And it was in some ways, typical of a first day of meeting a perpetrator. They all would take me to the places they killed and show me what they did. But and, but Anwar, I sort of felt, I could feel that his pain was close to the surface and was involved with sort of a part of his boasting. You know, he dances where he's killed hundreds of people. It was one of the most grotesque images of impunity that I'd filmed so, up to that point. And yet he says he's a good dancer because he's been drinking, going out dancing to forget what he's done, to forget the trauma of what he's done. And this really struck me, that the boasting and the trauma were two sides of the same coin. And I started to realize, wait a moment, maybe all of this boasting that I've been filming isn't really a sign of pride, but it's something much more easy to understand if you recognize that these are actually human beings. Of course they know what they've done is wrong, and of course, they don't want to admit that to themselves. And they, indeed, they've never had to. And they're justifying what they've done to themselves so they don't have to admit it 
what, admit what they know, namely that it was wrong, and they're imposing that victor's history, that celebration, that justification on this whole society with the threat of violence to back it up. I lingered on him and spent five years filming with him and his community. First of all, I couldn't promise immunity because, you know, uh, uh, there's no statute of limitations for crimes against humanity. Um, that They would not, for them to say, you know, for them even to say, I I'm, show hesitation about telling me what they did, uh, for them to even show hesitation about telling me what they did because they were, were afraid that it would make them look bad or because they were afraid they could they could get in trouble for it would actually to be to admit would be to admit that what they did was wrong and they've never been forced to do that and on the contrary they knew that uh, that my my government the american government not only supported what they did but participated in it, in it providing weapons money training lists of thousands of indonesian public figures intellectuals whom the us wanted dead so they they felt they had nothing to hide or rather, maybe they, they, they insisted that they had nothing to hide so that they wouldn't have to feel guilty. Um, so, you know, fundamentally, um, there, there was this, there was this in, terms of, in terms of the mechanisms of international justice, the International Criminal Court can't pursue this case because it, was, it, it occurred before the court came into existence. But an international tribunal, like what happened in the former Yugoslavia, uh, what's been set up for the former Yugoslavia could be established. That would normally happen through the Security Council of the United Nations. But a first step before that could happen, given that the United States and the UK are permanent members of the Security Council and were both involved with uh, supporting and, and implementing this crime, a first step would really have to be for the United States to, to step forward and set an example and show leadership by declassifying all the documents pertaining to what we did and to say, okay, you know, 50 years is long enough for us to get comfortable with actually what happened and to acknowledge and to actually start calling a genocide a genocide. Yeah, well, I think it's tempting to see the film and maybe say in a quick reading, oh, this film shows that violent movies beget violent behavior. I don't think that's true um, necessarily, or I think what, what's happening with why we watch violent movies is much more complicated than that. I mean, we, it's a profoundly mysterious why we watch why we enjoy watching violence, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it, it encourage us, encourages us to commit violence. The, the most powerful example that Anwar gives of a movie influencing behavior, to me, is not a gangster film, but it's an Elvis Presley musical. He says, I would watch an Elvis Presley musical come out of the cinema, intoxicated by my love for Elvis, dance my way across the street, and in such moments, I was able to kill happily. And it's as though... Movies helped him distance himself from the act of killing while he was killing. Acting, in that sense, was always part of the act of killing for Anwar. And really, I think what this signals is the danger of escapism. You know, this is a film about the, about the stories we tell ourselves to justify our actions, how we lie to ourselves to justify our actions, and it's a film about the consequences of those lies. Because maintaining those lies, maintaining the myth that the genocide is heroic, inevitably has sent Indonesia down, uh, into a downward spiral, culminating in a total moral vacuum, at least the government, the political system. And uh, I think somehow the, the, the real risk is not so much uh, that, that our movies are, are, are violent, but I think there's a real, there's a real problem when our whole culture industry is not about providing a forum, and our media is not about providing a forum 
for really reflecting on our most painful, difficult, and important problem, but escaping, escaping uh, from actually confronting who we are as human beings and what we've done. And, and so I think that's the real, the real indictment. And, and to some extent, I would have loved in the film to go into the details of American support for what happened. That was partly impossible because so much of the, de- so many of the important details, which could help determine how how important that support was to the ultimate outcome. So much of the, so many of the details remain classified, and that meant that in some ways, to make an argument about about that about the importance of that support from the United States, one way or the other, would have been to make a historical documentary, a film with experts arguing back and forth about what happened and 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 about the past. And this is really a film about the present, about a present-day regime of corruption and fear that the killers have built with the support of the U.S., and that makes us all much closer to killers than we would like to think. But this is a film about today. And so in some ways, I also deliberately wove the United States into the film culturally as a kind of specter haunting the film, because that's what the United States is to much of the world. All of the all of the fiction scenes, the ideas come from Anwar and his friends. Um, and the idea was basically, and I came to this idea before I met Anwar, all of these men were showing me how they killed taking me to the places where they killed. And, and before I met Anwar, I started to say, look, you've participated in one of the biggest killings in human history, and I was that open with them because they were that open with me. I want to know what it means to you and to your society, I would say. You want to show me what you've done, evidently, because they would invite me to the places they killed and show me. So show me what you've done in whatever way you wish, I would offer. I will film your reenactments, but I will also film you and your fellow death squad members discussing what you want to show and what you don't want to show, and therefore document how you want to be seen, how you see yourself, how you imagine this will be seen by the rest of the world. And in that sense, understand how this whole system of impunity, how this whole thereby in their voice somehow actually expose, expose, although I wouldn't have used that word with them, expose the way this rotten regime works. And and so I was proposing, insofar as I was proposing this to them directly, they know from the outset that they're not making scenes for a separate film. There's no film within the film. They're just making scenes for the act of killing. And the method is not a kind of trick to get them to open up. It is a response to their openness. But the 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 I I only they only started proposing these genre inspired dramatizations once we reached the city of Medan, once my research process reached the city of Medan and I lingered on Anwar and discovered that the army had recruited Anwar and his friends from the ranks of what they, they called themselves movie theater gangsters. Um, these were gangsters, criminals, hanging out in cinemas, uh, doing all sorts of crime, but also scalping tickets. And they loved American movies. And the the, the reenactments emerged, these, these uh, cinematic stylized reenactments emerged organically as Anwar as with Anwar I started to do something I hadn't done with the others, which was to show him the the scenes we were shooting. Starting with that very first scene where he takes me up to the roof and shows how he killed with wire, I show it to him, wondering if he'll recognize the real meaning of what he's done in the mirror of the footage. And he looks like he does. He looks very disturbed. But he doesn't dare acknowledge what's bothering him. Instead he proposes an improvement, because to admit that this is disturbing would be to admit it was wrong. And so instead, he lies to himself and to me about what's bothering him and starts to propose these stylizations. And I just followed that process again and again and again, shooting a scene, letting him watch it, shooting another scene, letting him watch it, shooting another scene, letting him watch it. All of the ideas come from him. 
Um, and and the scenes became more and more wild, more and more surreal, more and more strange, and more and more frightening. The children who cry are not, of course, uh, first of all, the, 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 there's one scene where we see them burning down a village. It isn't a village at all. It's a set. And everybody in the scene is the immediate family members of the perpetrators and the paramilitary leaders. And I think the children, in fact, look like they're the only ones who understand what the scene's about because they're showing the appropriate emotional reaction to a pogrom, a massacre. But in fact, I think they're the only people in the scene who don't really know what the film's about. They've been auditioned for their ability to cry, and I think all of them were, in fact, much less traumatized than their parents, who did know what it was about. The process of making the scene were forced to somehow think about what, what actually ha- what, what those events really meant. Were the end, the end, they were the end of the movie. They were the end of the shooting with Anwar. The, the final scene was the very last scene I shot with him. You know, Anwar goes through this process where he cul- culminating, leading up, culminates with him playing the victim. And um, he, he plays the victim and he feels haunted. He can't go on. He says, I need to, I need to stop. And in fact, uh, in fact, after that, he then proposes to cleanse himself of the ghost that he felt came to him while playing the victim. He proposes staging his own redemption. It's this crazy scene in heaven where he, it's a musical number set in heaven where his victims are giving him a, uh, people, perpetrators, in fact, acting as his victims, give him a medal, thanking them, thanking Anwar for killing them and sending them to heaven. And he, uh, he then watches that scene and says it's so powerful. But of course, this staged redemption is a lie. And at some level, it seems he knows it because it doesn't seem to offer any lasting solace. He says, okay, let me watch the scene now where I play the victim. It's as though he knows that that's going to to to, to bother him. He, to sort of protect himself, says, Josh, now I feel what my victims feel. It's as though he's trying to protect himself by offering kind of an insincere and generic confession. And because I made this film not to lead him to a place of remorse, but actually on behalf of the survivors with whom I began this journey, it was really clear to me that, no, of course he doesn't feel what his victims felt. They were being killed. So I say to him, no, you're acting. They were dying. That's different. And in that moment, he sort of, I think the bottom drops out for him. And he recognizes that that the meaning of what he's done he'll never be able to bridge the abyss between all the lies he's told himself and the whole regime has told justifying this and the real horror of what he's done. And finally, he goes back a few, few months later, in fact, we went back to the to the scene of the crime and trying to just tell me what he's done there. His body, his, his, he's interrupted by this fit of dry heaving. And Werner Herzog saw that scene. He said, it's as though the angel of... of, of uh, the angel of vengeance has descended upon him. Um, and, and he's trying to vomit up. He's always trying to vomit up the ghosts that haunt him, only to find that that nothing comes up, because what haunts him is, is his past. And as much as it's a, a powerful scene, it was horrible to be there. Um, and all I wanted to do was to put my arm on him and say this stupid thing that we Americans say in our eternal optimism, which is often mis- misguided, just to say it's going to be okay. And I knew, of course, in that moment, no, this is what happens. 
when it really will not be okay. I spoke to Oppenheimer again in 2016, this time in studio, about his Oscar-nominated companion piece documentary The Look of Silence, in which optometrist Adi Raccoon used routine eye exams to grill the death squad leaders who killed his brother. We have the filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer. Joshua, welcome. Thank you. And we also have the subject of the movie, Adi, who is also here with his interpreter. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank you. Trimagasi. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I just watched it again this morning, and it's it's a it's a powerful piece of work. First of all, you probably don't even remember this, but over Skype we talked about the act of killing. That movie that movie blew me away. I mean, Twenty Feet from Stardom was really good too, but I, I felt a little bad because I was like, that movie deserved to win it. Um, so maybe maybe uh, maybe this year maybe this year's your year. What do you think? Well, we're <laughs> we do all we can, but truthfully, we mainly use the nomination and the attention that it brings as an opportunity to deepen the impact of the movie and yeah. to raise the issues that are so important to millions yeah. of people. At the heart of the movie. Yeah. And why don't you, I mean, I, I just watched it again, but why don't you tell us so our listeners can hear it, tell them what it's about. So The Look of Silence uh, explores what it's like to live for half a century in fear and silence. What it's like when your country becomes one enormous open-air prison. It's a companion piece as you, to my first film, The Act of Killing, but equally you could say The Act of Killing is the companion to The Look of Silence. The two films form one work, and you if you see any film first, I would hope it's The Look of Silence uh, at this point, because it really is the film we initially set out to make. Mm. And in The Look of Silence, we, it, like The Act of Killing, deals with the aftermath of the 1965 Indonesian genocide when the United States uh, helped the government of Indonesia overthrow, or helped the military of Indonesia, sorry, overthrow President Sukarno and basically consolidate, build a new military dictatorship through the mass murder of anybody who might be opposed to the new military regime. That included teachers and trade unionists and writers and artists and anyone in a left-wing or left-leaning political party. Uh, people were rounded up, killed, and within a year, somewhere between half a million and as many as three million people were killed. And the perpetrators have been in power ever since. And in they so instead of uh, denying what they've done or acting ashamed about it, as you might expect in document documentary where you see perpetrators of human rights abuse, here they boast. Now, that's true in the act of killing, too. Mm -hmm. But in this film, we follow Adi Rukun and his family. Uh, Adi's older brother was killed in the genocide, and Adi decides to go and confront all the men involved with killing his brother, something unimaginable in Indonesia. And he's an optometrist. And one way he builds intimacy with the perpetrators and gets close to them is by offering them eye tests. And so while testing their eyes and trying to help them see, he asks them to take responsibility for what they've done. And the results have uh, broken, really, 50 years of silence in Indonesia. And, and the film bears witness to the very first conversations that, that break that silence. How did you find, um, you know, as a filmmaker, how did you actually find Adi to and, and, and the idea of the optometry to and say, oh, this is how we're going to get at these guys? So I was working with Adi and his family from the very beginning of my project in Indonesia all the way back in 2003. It was Adi and his family who I started filming. Adi was gathering survivors to tell me their stories. After three weeks, the army threatened all of the survivors not to participate in the film. Adi called me to his parents' home at midnight. I arrived. There was a whole room full of survivors waiting for me, looking at me expectantly, afraid because they knew they were being monitored. And they said, don't give up. Try to film the perpetrators. That led to uh, ultimately seven years of working with the perpetrators and my first film, The Act of Killing. 
I always knew I would return and make a film about what it's like for survivors to live surrounded by the men who killed their loved ones, with those people still in power and threatening them. I returned in 2012, right after editing The Act of Killing, but before it had its first screening. Mm. And I sat down with at which point I knew I couldn't return to Indonesia at all because of death threats and and possibly a ban from the government. I arrived and Adi said to me right away, I've spent seven years watching your footage with the perpetrators. It's changed me. I need to confront the the man who killed my brother. I said no instantly. I said it's too dangerous. There's never before been a film where survivors are confronting perpetrators who still hold a monopoly on power. We can't do it. Adi explained why it was so important to him, saying that he hoped that by visiting the perpetrators uh, and by uh, showing them that he sees them as human beings, that if they can just admit what they've done was wrong, he can forgive, that they would welcome this as a chance to uh, be forgiven by their victim's family, to stop their kind of manic boasting, which Adi always thought was defensive, that it was a mask for guilt, and that in this way, he could re- he could reconcile his family with his neighbors and give his children a future where they don't have to be afraid of everyone who lives around them. Mm-hmm. I was moved. We realized there might be a safe way of doing this, but we also realized it would be essential for Adi to build intimacy and rapport mm-hmm. and connection and to show these men that he sees them as human beings. And I realized that's what Adi does every day as an optometrist. I also realized that the optometry something Adi could focus on if he was scared and therefore maybe not feel the fear and not show fear, which would make the whole thing more dangerous Mm -hmm. because people sniff fear and will go after it and more difficult. So initially the the eye tests had this very practical purpose about safety, about building intimacy, about Mm -hmm. humanizing the perpetrators, showing the perpetrators that Adi sees them as human beings. But ultimately, it, they become this kind of powerful metaphor for blindness as perpetrator after perpetrator refuses to acknowledge what they've done. Definitely. Um, and, and Adi, um, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry for the, the loss of your brother back in these atrocities. But, um, you know, how, once, you, once you met up with, with Joshua and, and you said, I, I want to interview the, per, the, you know, the perpetrators all these years later, um, was part of you nervous? How much? How did you muster the courage to sit and and look them in the eye? Um, did the optometry help ease into it a little? Um, but how did you muster the courage to do that? Now, now we're gonna have Joshua interpret um, what Adi just said. I knew the perpetrators from Joshua Oppenheimer's footage, of course, and I wanted them to I wanted them to acknowledge that what they'd done uh, was wrong. I wanted them to acknowledge to my face and openly to the world what they had done, and I wanted to see them take responsibility for what they'd done. And I was sure they would when meeting a relative of one of their victims face to face. I was hopeful that they would acknowledge that it was wrong. I was looking for this acknowledgement and because after all we live as neighbors and I have to we're surrounded by these people who killed my brother and, and so many others it's funny but I wasn't really afraid and I think the reason why is because 
Well, for 50 years, my family's already been living in fear. We, as many as three million people were killed, hundreds of thousands of people were uh, people were made political prisoners, uh, and and we victims were stigmatized, and we've been living afraid for so long that this was really the only way. This was rather than something frightening. This was the only way that I could find out of the trap of fear. Um, was there a point um, when you're conducting the interviews? Is there a point, you know, halfway through the conversation where you can see that they re- they're they realizing you're not there just to look at their eyes? And, and do you see? Did you see them sort of tense up? Um, and were you surprised that some of them were as forthcoming as they were? When I first met them, they didn't know who I was. They they knew I just that I was Joshua's friend and I was there to test their eyes. I'd ask questions step by step, becoming deeper and deeper, and as the questions would become deeper, they would grow more suspicious uh, as, the, as my questions would become more sharp and probing. Then, when I would reveal who I was, that I'm the brother of a victim, they would respond with anger, with panic, with shock. Uh, they would accuse me of being a kind of new communist, a, a, a secret communist, and they would try and stop the interview, but worse, they would threaten they would threaten violence. And in this moment of panic and shock, none of them were able to acknowledge that what they did was wrong, and they would rather cling to the claim that they were heroes and deserved uh, some kind of a reward for what they'd done. And as you as a, a filmmaker, you know what did it sort of shock you the the level of you know how they can how you know you could just rationalize it and justify it that it's it this is just for politics and and you know did was that one of the more eye opening thing from from both of these companion piece movies it was maddening in the sense that uh when Adi confronted the perpetrators they would shift they would inevitably have to shift from one lie to another and all the lies were contradicting each other so they would move from one, they would say one thing, Adi would counter it effectively, then they would just choose something totally contradictory to, ca- to counter against you. would feel this kind of web of denial that was so thick. I I did expect that Adi would not get the apology for which he was hoping. I told Adi right away, I said, Adi, I think you're going into these, When before we started shooting the film, I said, you're going into these men's homes with your gentle, very humanizing gaze, especially you're testing their eyes. They will, of course, see you as a human being, too. You're a doctor. You're there as a friend of someone they know. You're kind. And when they see you as a human being, they will automatically see, when you reveal that Romley was your brother, they'll, that when they killed, they'll automatically see, at least for a moment, Romley as a human being. Mm-hmm. And by extension, they'll pers- at least glimpse the possibility that all their victims might have been human beings. And I said, I don't think this will make it easy for them. I don't think this will elicit... Uh, will draw elicit an apology. I think this will make it harder. They will panic. They will get angry because all the lives they've all the lies they've told themselves for fifty years so that they can live with themselves have been based on dehumanizing their victims. And suddenly they'll see their victims as human. They'll panic and they'll scramble about for new lies. And I think that's exactly what you're uh, referring to. This sense that well, when one lie is no longer going to work better find a new one yeah. because otherwise how are they going to live live with themselves yeah. they're 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 you you asked earlier to Adi wasn't it surprising how open they were and exactly they're so open at the beginning of these confrontations yeah. they're 
Uh, it doesn't even dawn on them that it's that, yeah. No, they're telling and all they the details. Well, yeah. uh, but but actually, there's one scene in particular where Enong, the very first perpetrator we see Adi confronting in the film, is telling really horrific stories of what he did. And he's and Adi asks the question in a pause, Are you? is everybody around here afraid of you? And instantly we realize the reason everyone would be afraid of him is not so much because of what he did then, but because of the way he's been openly boasting about it ever since. And yet when the, as, as Adi's questions become more direct, the perpetrators start, as they need to look for new excuses, they start denying responsibility that just moments earlier they were claiming. Moments earlier yeah. they're boasting about what they did. About drinking blood. Drink, it's oh, yeah, just horrible the most things. horrible stuff. And then moments later, they're saying, oh, it wasn't me. It had nothing to do with me yeah. it was, or it was just an order and I had no responsibility for this. You see them shift. And that shift, if you were writing a fiction screenplay, there would be no, it, there would be no more effective way of showing a guilty conscience, right. that defensive shift. Yeah. Speaking of the guilty conscience, um, you know, in... In Act of Killing, what's the guy's name? Anwar Congo. Anwar Congo, yeah. yeah. He, his guilty conscience literally almost comes up in this dry heaving at the end of the thing. You also saw that with Robert Durst in The Jinx. I thought there was a little burping thing going on there too. But be, that's a side conversation. But, you know, there wasn't there wasn't such a, in, in this movie, Look of Silence, there wasn't such an outward gut, you know, response physical by anyone like that. Um, you could see in their eyes. Um, but I think the closest that that we come is the daughter of of the other one, right? She she seems to have the biggest emotional reaction. Um, what was it like when when you're shooting that scene? I, I want to ask Adi about this after I ask you, but um, you know what what was it like watching her world change on a dime? Her face melt. Like yeah, that? that's beautifully put. Her face melts. I mean, her father. It was a, first of all, it was an amazing moment because we had returned. I'd filmed with this man seven years earlier. I guess his health had worsened. He's old. His daughter had moved home to be able to look after him. And so she said she wanted to uh, help with the interview just to make sure he understood the questions. And, and I don't, I didn't, this was my own fault, I think, because we were scared that he lived next to a paramilitary commander and I was distracted by whether we would get out of there safely. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think right away that, of course, she'll be the main character in this scene now. Because how will she react right. to what her father had said? Anyways, and all, her father uh, starts revealing in front of her the horrible details of what he's done. And she you do see her face melt as she realizes that her dad is not the hero that she always hoped he was or tried to convince herself that she that he was. And in that moment, uh, and then Adi reveals that his brother was killed. And instead of panicking, as I think I would have done, and kick, kicking the whole crew out of the house, she does something very beautiful, delicate, maybe... Uh, maybe even almost hard to follow because it's it's real and it doesn't it doesn't it's not scripted so it it, it has this kind of it's almost at first you're not even sure it's happening, but she just sits there and listens to her conscience goes very silent and then turns to Adi and in a faltering way apologizes and Adi Asks for forgiveness yeah yeah on on her father's behalf and Adi now has to do what he's said he wanted to do which is to forgive. Mm -hmm. And he does so in a beautiful way where he, he reassures her that it's not her fault. And at the end, whatever he is, he's your father, almost giving her permission to keep mm -hmm. loving him because yeah. 
just seen her realize that she'll have to spend the rest of his life looking after a man who now in a terrible way has become a kind of stranger to her. And she's still a mom. She has her kids living with this guy in the house. And when Adi gets up to leave, she looks like she doesn't want to let him go. She's like, gives him a hug, like sort of like mm-hmm. almost imploring him in her eyes, please don't go. Yeah. And Adi hugs her. But then Adi also hugs her dad, who hasn't expressed any remorse. He's just sat there awkwardly as this interaction between Adi and his daughter has taken place. Hugs her dad also, I think, to make his departure easier mm-hmm. for the daughter. Right. And I, I think they, they're still in touch, Adi and the daughter. Awesome. Yeah, I, I know we're, we're running out of time, so probably it's going to have to be the last one, right? Um, but I want to get Adi's take, you know, hear it straight from him from on that moment, too. Um, you know, what what was it like as as you're you're describing to the daughter um, the, what her father did and realize that she didn't know any of this stuff and you see the physical transformation of her you know get really emotional and then you know and then you guys embracing that hug what was that like did that was that a little closure for you were you feeling forgiveness you know in the air in the room because that's a really touching moment. Sebetonya. Of all the perpetrators I met and all of the families of the perpetrators I met, only Samsir's daughter was able to sincerely acknowledge that what happened was wrong. And at the beginning of the meeting, she was proud of of what her father had done, of the killings. She then realizes what he did and, and changes 180 degrees. She's shocked to discover who her father really was and who, who, was, who were the people who were killed. And indeed, this had been my hope, to have someone acknowledge the meaning of what had happened. She asked, in, after taking all this in, she asked for an apology. And I'd say, my, my response to her was, your father's sins are your father's sins. They're not your sins. Uh, you, your, your father's crimes are not your crimes. And as his child, as his daughter, you still must love and honor him as your parent. And so there was a reconciliation between us. And this was my, this was my hope that there would be. And this was my hope that there would be this reconciliation. I felt afterwards very relieved uh, because and, and because I think this was what I was looking for. And, and honestly, this was the only time that I felt relieved coming from the confrontations with the perpetrators. Because finally I'd received an honest answer, a sincere answer. Why do I say that? Because the human... Okay, because I received not a sincere, sincere answer, so then I thought, why do I say that? Because the killers themselves had admitted to Joshua in their earlier footage that they knew they were killing good people, good human beings. The people who killed my brother Romley, when Joshua filmed them talking about what they'd done and reenacting it, they say, Romley was a good man. Uh, Romley was a good man, and we nevertheless killed him. There you go. Say no more. I mean, that, it's a really, it's a really powerful um, piece of work. Um, so, a, I just want to say thank you for all, everything you, you've done in Indonesia, exposing. I mean, uh, it's about an optometrist, but you opened our eyes too. It was like you were putting on a different lens for all of us too, watching it. So, um, I really appreciate it. Um, anything, anything else you want to say before you go? Well, just yeah, I know that we're short of time, but I guess two last things, because here we are in Washington D.C. and it's tempting to see this film as 
kind of parable about mass violence everywhere and a film about something that happened in Indonesia uh, far, far away, half a century ago. But this is really not just Indonesian history. This is American history. The United States participated in this crime. It funded uh, the the perpetrators. It funded the Indonesian army during the genocide. It gave them weapons with which to carry out the genocide. It gave... Uh, it gave the radios necessary for the army to com- coordinate the killings across this vast country. It's a country as vast as the United States. And it gave an embassy staff in Jakarta, gave lists of 5,000 names of journalists, artists, public figures who were seen as likely opponents of the new military dictatorship and said, go down these lists, check off the names as you get these people and give, this, give these back to us when you're done. That is to say they gave death lists. Now, these are terrible details, but the real depths of, inver- of American involvement in the genocide remain secret. There's been, uh, it's been uh, all of this, it's been 50 years, yet all of the CIA job documents about what happened, all of the defense attache documents about what happened, what America was doing in Indonesia at the time remain classified despite numerous Freedom of Information Act requests. And Adi and I are here in Washington in part to meet with senators, uh, Senate staffs, uh, and other other uh, policymakers to encourage the U.S. government to declassify those documents. The act of killing and the look of silence have triggered a fundamental transformation in how Indonesia talks about its past. The media and the public now talk about the killings as a genocide and about the criminal regime that's been in power ever since. They've screened thousands of times across the country. They've they've been online. Uh, they've been seen online tens of millions of times. The Look of Silence is the first Indonesian production ever nominated for an Oscar. It's distributed by the Indonesian government, the National Human Rights Commission, but it's also banned by the Indonesian government, the Film Censorship Board, uh, under pressure of the military. So Indonesia is starting to open up and is wrestling with its past. The U.S. as its partner in crime should open up as well and should encourage a full disclosure of what happened justice, and reconciliation. Wow. Well, welcome to D.C. Thanks for uh, all your hard work and keep up the good work. There's one last thing. You can support that effort by going to the film's website, thelookofsilence.com, where you'll see right there, sign the petition. You can sign a petition urging your senators to support a Senate resolution demanding that the U.S. uh, declassify those documents. I know those of you in Washington don't have a senator or senators. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you see that, yeah. Taxation without representation it's, license plate. Everywhere. It sure <laughs> is. <laughs> but uh, but yes, no. You came to the right the right city for that. So thank thanks for taking the time and coming in, um, Adi. Thank you so much too, so much for taking the time. And um, again, sorry for everything your family's gone through. But um, thanks for the courage to participate in this. Um, I find hope in your embrace with the the daughter. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.